Acts chapter 17, the gospel going to all the world with the glad tidings, the Christmas stories, making its way through the Mediterranean. We pick up at chapter 17. Uh, Now, uh, Heavenly Father, we do ask your blessing on our efforts here to understand your word. We know it's God-breathed from heaven, and you have a message for each heart that you've called to be in this place at this time. So help us, Lord, there's no coincidences. We know that you've gathered us here because you have something important to say, to remind us, to comfort us, to nourish us in our faith through the word of God. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was in high school, an unruly teenager, hard to believe, but my parents would say to me, now listen, don't hang out with the wrong crowd of people because you're going to get into trouble. Anybody ever hear that expression from your parents? Well, what my parents didn't understand is that I was the wrong crowd. (laughs) And when other parents in the neighborhood would use that expression, they would be thinking about me. Um, It is good advice, however, even if it meant uh, staying away from Ross as a teenager. Uh, It is true, being with the wrong people at the wrong time can create some problems and find yourself in a world of hurt. The reason I use that story, hanging out with the wrong crowd and finding yourself in trouble, is because in God's kingdom, as it's often said, which is an upside down kingdom to our world, we're going to meet a young man who gets in trouble for hanging out with the right crowd, with men who have convictions morally, that love the Lord, men of truth. And Jason will associate himself with men of God, and for doing that, he's going to wind up in a lot of hot water. So let's continue with Paul and Silas traveling throughout now Europe, spreading the good tidings of great joy to all people, verse 1 through 9. Now when they, Paul and Silas and the team, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Now, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, those who did not believe. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers, some other Christians before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. Well, when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. 
All right, well, let's get our bearings with our familiar second missionary journey map. And we'll see here that we have now left Philippi, Acts chapter 16. A church has been established. And so we've come down through these two towns and wind up in Thessalonica. This morning, we're going to cover 100 miles. It's 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. Uh, Now, uh, we are going to manage to get to uh, verse 14, which is in Berea. So two different stops this morning. First, as we read, Thessalonica, verses 1 through 9, which we just read, we're going to meet men with no character. All right? So if you're taking notes, we meet men with no character. And then the next paragraph is as far as we'll get this morning. Uh, It's another 45 miles uh, to the west. It is called a place very famous in the scriptures, Berea. It's from verses 10 through 14. And we'll meet men with noble character. All right? So going from Thessalonica to Berea. But first, let's look at Thessalonica. Now, of course, this is the place where Paul has spent only three weeks, and he kind of got run out of town, which is the usual story. Uh, It has happened six times so far in Acts. So we're coming up on time seven. But he only got to teach there for, what, three Saturdays, three weeks. So he had a lot to tell them. So he wrote them two letters. First, Thessalonians, and second Thessalonians, he's writing to Jason. And the church that was meeting at Jason's house, all those Christians who got hauled out off in front of the magistrates for causing trouble all over the world. You know how we Christians are. There's always causing trouble, right? I don't know what that means. And so the, the, these letters, it's just amazing that Paul, in three weeks, think of first and second Thessalonians, what's in that. These are brand new Christians. He talks all about the Antichrist. He talks about the rapture. He talks about the second coming. He talks about future judgment. He talks an awful lot to these brand new Christians who have only been Christians three weeks or so, but a few months go by, and most people believe that 1 Thessalonians is really Paul's first letter. And so it's, it's amazing to see. I, I would recommend that you go home tonight and the next couple days after hearing this message about what happened in this little city and then read 1 Thessalonians because you, you just saw how it came, the gospel came to Thessalonica. And so just, just amazing thing. And as we see, first of all, Paul's got an MO, right? He's got a strategy. Hit the big cities and find, if you can, a Jewish synagogue. Uh, you find the Jewish neighborhoods, and if you had 10 Jewish men, you could have a synagogue, which just means from Hebrew and Greek, it means a meeting place together. That's all synagogue means. And so they would get together, and Paul just said, hey, listen, let's start with the Jews, because Jude- uh, Christianity is Judaism fulfilled, and if anybody's going to get it, it ought to be the Jews, because it's, the gospel comes to you through Israel, through Jewish things. And so he goes to the Jew first because they have a working knowledge of the scriptures and a working understanding of the one true God. And so if Paul were to be evangelizing today in South America, where would he go? He might go into the Catholic Church. If he went to Romania, 
he'd probably start with the Orthodox Church. And if he went to Utah, he'd probably go to the Mormon Church. The pause there was to let you go ahead and say that. <laughs> because there's an open Bible. There's misapplication. There's added things. There's takeaway things. But there is an open book and the professed name of Jesus. So let's start with the open book and let's talk about some of these things. That was Paul's uh, strategy. And then your text says he spent three weeks there, three Saturdays. And he was warmly received at Bethel Thessalonica, let's call it, as the little Jewish temples are often called Bethel Temple. And so Paul was in, had some excellent um, credentials as a trained rabbi under the famous Gamaliel. He was also a former Pharisee. So he was a noted guest to have. And as the synagogue service would, would progress, uh, notable uh, guests would be invited to come and teach and share from the Bible and give a sermon. And so Paul would do that. Now Silas was from Jerusalem. So when they met Paul, former rabbi, Pharisee, and then Silas, oh, man, you're from Jerusalem. And then Timothy, well, he's kind of a half Jew, half uh, Greek. His father was Greek. But you know what? Just a few months ago, we had a little ceremony, and we made everything hunky-dory, and everything's kosher. And they were like, oh, man, how, what a heartwarming story. So Paul's little strategy paid off. He said, Timothy, we don't need to do this. By the way, that ceremony is called a bris. B-R-I-S, to make a male fully Jewish. Moving on. <laughs> so your text says that as they gathered together with those worshipers, he explained the prophecies and strong word proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Well, of course, that was the sticking point. You're telling us about a king who's dead, who had to die on the cross, shamefully? How does that make sense? He said, let me show you that this was part of the plan. Like Jesus said in John chapter 10, nobody takes my life from me. Are you kidding me? I have come to willingly lay down my life. Then in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, I've come to give my life a ransom payment for the world. It was on purpose. So Paul had to tell them, they, the Jews were always expecting, and to this day, are expecting Jesus, their Messiah, well, not with a, some other name, apparently, uh, to come and elevate Israel from all her enemies and to come the way that we know him as coming the second time. They forgot about the, the prophecies about the suffering ser servant. They've got the conquering king down. They're waiting for the conquering king. But you can't have a conquering king unless you've been reconciled to that king through the blood of God's son. And so Paul had a field day, man. Uh, the word proved there in the Greek means to lay side by side. So what he did is said, uh, Jesus had to suffer. Let me show you that. Isaiah 53. I've got it for you on the screen. Surely he took up our pain, bore our suffering. So he's telling the Jews, listen, your Messiah had to die. It was on purpose. Yet we considered him punished by God. 
stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord, the God, God the Father, it pleased the Lord to do this to the Son, God the Son. The Lord had laid on him the sin, the iniquity of us all. You know, I've said often that Jesus wasn't killed for his good work. His good work was to be killed. It was on purpose as a sin bearer, as somebody who came to to make us right with God. He had to do that. So, you know, Paul was having a field day. Like I said, he went to Daniel chapter 9, which all Jews would know. Oh, the promised Messiah. And there in uh, Daniel chapter 9, it says, Messiah will be cut off from the land of the living, snatched up to the throne in heaven. Oh, let me show you that. See? He got cut off. He might have quoted uh, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in that Psalm, it says, they've nailed my hands and pierced my feet. He could say, fellas, listen. I know the man who was standing at that cross and saw that happen and heard him say, Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They knew it was a messianic psalm. Paul could say, I know a man who heard the Messiah on the cross according to the scriptures, Isaiah 53, Daniel chapter 9, and then God raised him from the dead. Psalm, Old Testament 16, you will not allow me to be dead long enough for my body to decay. That verse is used to say, yes, he had to die, but temporarily because he's raised back to life. And so with all of that, He proved, and they received. Many of the Jews believed. Now, a great response there in verse 4. Some Jews believed, but many God-fearing Greeks. So what's up with that? Well, in the back sat some Gentiles. They were called God-fearers. And and this is why why they were called that is because they had a reverence for God. Uh, They were sick of Roman mythology, and temple shrine prostitution, and multiple marriages, and sexual immorality, and they said, hey, we like the God of Israel. We want to sit in on the services, but we do not want to go all the way and become a Jew. Uh, There are some things about it that kind of turn us off, especially if you're a guy, right? So uh, they said, you know, let us sit in the back, and we're, we're cool with that. And they said, yeah, hey, we're going to call you God-fearers, and you can sit in your own section, and very good. Well, a lot of them, more of them, got saved than the Jews, which doesn't make sense, but it does in another way because there's a lot to lose as a Jew. There's only something to gain as a Gentile. If you're coming out of that culture... Any step is a step in the right direction, right? So you bring gospel and Jesus and God's love. It's easy for a Gentile, but harder for the Jew. A young man came up to me in one of our services. He had along with him his Hebrew Jewish Bible. And uh, Wednesday night after Wednesday night, Sunday after Sunday, he, he suddenly and finally became a Christian. He came up to me and he said, hey, 
Every time you read from your Bible, it's exactly what I have in my Jewish Bible. And I go, wow, what a miracle. <laughs> I'm so surprised. He said, you know what? And I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And I've, I said the sinner's prayer. When you said the sinner's prayer, I said the sinner's prayer. And then he said, of course, I can't tell anybody. I go, oh, well, can we sit down and talk a little bit about that? <laughs> I can't tell anybody. Why, why can't you tell anybody? Oh, my parents are Jews. Well, you know, you're going to have to tell people that you became a Christian. Oh, no, you don't understand. I'd be turning my back on thousands of years of our family tradition. I'm just going to walk in and say, you know what? That's all in the past. I've embraced Jesus now. He said, that, that's not going to happen. I said, well, it probably will happen in some time. So why don't you just pray about it, all right? And so we encouraged him to go home and get into a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> now, what happens here? A wonderful work, and of course, the devil is going to stir up some trouble. Now, how do we know the devil's behind all that rioting and chaos? Well, Ephesians chapter 6 says, you know, Paul says, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, it's not flesh and blood human beings that we wrestle against, but it's the dark powers of spiritual darkness behind the people that is the real problem. Ephesians chapter six, verse 11 and following. And so what the devil does is he brings together the unbelieving Jews who said, you know what, we don't want this Christ and we don't want others to have that Christ because that threatens our synagogue because people were turning from the rabbis and going to follow with big eyes and happy hearts and loving affirmation to Paul and Silas who brought the good news about Judaism that has been fulfilled, right? So half the congregation is now following Paul and Silas and uh, the Jewish unbeliever resentment has blossomed into hatred. Well, folks, it was inevitable that most of the congregation would leave and follow Paul now. Uh, think about it. Judaism is the sign, the pointing to something beautiful is gonna happen, that God's going to become a man. He's gonna lay down his life. He's gonna go to a cross. He's gonna suffer for our sins. He's gonna restore us and make us clean and forgive all of our sins. It's a sign, right? And now they've entered into a fulfillment of that. They don't want the sign. Let me put it to you this way. When the kids were little, we'd go to Disneyland. And as we approached, there was something really exciting about seeing the sign on the I-5. Disneyland, next exit. And the kids were like, yeah, Disneyland. And they see the sign, look at the sign, look at the sign. And then that Harbor Boulevard was like just shining a beacon in the night, you know? And then the exit in Disneyland straight ahead and all the signs, they're so excited. Then we go in, we go to the gate. We're in the park. We're taking pictures with Mickey and Minnie. You know, we got Pluto and Tigger and we got Space Mountain. We're having a good time now. What if I say, kids, I've got some real excitement for you. Get in the car. Let's go back to the freeway. We're going to take a look in a picture of the sign, Disneyland. Come on, let's go. I don't think so, right? <laughs> I don't think so because, Dad, we're, we're already here now. We're enjoying Space Mountain. We're, we're paying $11 for a Coke. Come on. I mean, <laughs> sorry. That didn't go over, but yeah. 
Someone gets married, you put on the engagement ring. Oh, that's so beautiful, that's beautiful. After the wedding ring goes on and you got the honeymoon, you're gonna say, hey, let's go back to the engagement party so we could just wait. <laughs> just sit and wait, right? That's what we want. We want just the sign that something big is gonna happen. We don't want the actual honeymoon and life together and the fulfillment of the sign. No, we wanna go back to the engagement. Yeah, of course. The Jews heard and experienced the fulfillment. Jesus said, oh, come on, wine doesn't go in a, in a wineskin that's already been uh, already stretched out. It's a new thing. It's like the un, un, uh, unshrunk fabric sewn onto the, uh, I'm terrible at these wineskins and the patch <laughs> thing. I don't, just can't understand it, Barb. Come on up here. It's, <laughs> Unshrunk, and then you don't shrink it, and you put it in the wash, and it tears everything, and it's ruined, right? Something like that. What Jesus said is that Judaism isn't going to work anymore because I'm the fulfillment of it. Now it's life in Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, about those bad guys. So who do they find? I love what the King James, how he describes them. Certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. <laughs> You know what we call them today? It's easy, thugs. <laughs> we just call them thugs or low lives. No offense to you if you hang out at the mall. <laughs> you know what it says here? It says in the Greek, belonging to downtown, belonging to. <laughs> you don't believe me. Belonging to the market. That's what it says. That these people are just hanging out looking for trouble, and so the unbelieving Jews said, hey, guys, they're breaking up our families. They're, 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 <laughs> they're talking, uh, taking our friends away. They're stealing our sheep, man. And so, um, yeah, there was a big riot. So they fired them up from lies, by lies from hell, the infuriated, frenzied mob. They head to Jason's house. They think that's where they are, but they were staying there, but they're not there now. They're MIA. So what do they do? They drag Jason, the host, and some other Christians to the courtyard square. Why? Because you're guilty by association. It doesn't matter you've been a Christian for three weeks. It doesn't matter. You don't even know which way is up. You don't even know what, what a Bible is. You have opened your home. You said, hey, I like this message. I want to get saved. And now there's a price to pay, Jason. You've associated with the big troublemaker. These guys have come and caused trouble. It says in the Greek, they've turned the whole world upside down. Well, what a compliment, first of all. <laughs> Would to God they said that about the rock. They turned Santa Rosa upside down. That's a nice thing. Because really, the world is upside down since Genesis chapter 3. The fall of man put a, everything upside down. The gospel comes at Christmas. Jesus comes into a world that's upside down, and he tries to right it, turn it right side up. This is the way up, truth, salvation, goodness, righteousness. So what do they say? They've caused trouble all over the world. Turn the world upside down. What does that mean? It means, you know, they are the cause of radically impacting
people so that nothing's the same. Lives are transformed. And it was just awful, all right? Number one, people had stopped going to the shrines to offer themselves in prostitution, to worship false gods and believing lies, okay? It was really bad. The second thing they did, they stopped going to fortune tellers and believing in superstitions. They were trusting in God's word instead. What a bunch of troublemakers. Oh my, multitudes now not giving themselves over to drunkenness or sexual immorality. Corrupt business practices are ceasing. People are being honest in their business. There's less oppressive clawing your way to the top kind of thing and abusing power and lording it over people. Rather, now people are wanting to serve with humility. Money and materialism had lost its appeal and people wanted to start living for what was really important, God, truth, loving one another, serving the Lord, and living for the gospel. They were turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, loving their enemies. Just terrible. You get it? Okay, I'm being sarcastic. Okay, apparently you're not in a sarcastic mood. Fine. So actually, they're turning the world right side up. Yeah, it's just amazing. When somebody is upside down because of unbelief, everybody else looks upside down, right? So in other words, if you don't know the Lord, oftentimes right becomes wrong, wrong becomes right, good is evil, and the very evil things are now become good. Now, I had a family recently pull me aside and just talk to me about their daughter who was raised in a Christian home and has departed. Uh, here's what they said. It's really strange how the people who love her the most and tell her the truth are the bad guys and the ones who know her the least and are most lost themselves and use her and tell her lies are the good at loving people. The Pharisees were upside down. You want to know upside down? I'll tell you what's upside down. When you can look at God in a body, that's what Colossians 2.9 says. He's God in a body. It says in a lot of places. To look at God in the body, see what he can do, listen to his words, see his life, and point at him and say, you're the devil. Mark chapter 12, 24. You're the devil. Oh, folks, that's called upside down because when you're on the throne like a Pharisee and you're calling the shots and you're puffed up with self-righteous pride that you're right and everybody else is wrong, you're upside down. And you look at God and see the devil. You look at your friends and family who love you and see the bad guys. You look at the bad guys who want to take you down with them and you say, look, good guys, tolerant and loving and kind. That's crazy. Amen? I need an amen. Thank you, Ross. There's another Ross sitting dead center right there, and I just thought I'd point that out. All right, the charges are these guys are troublemakers, and number two, they're also political rebels. They're plotting a coup. All this talk, King Jesus, King Jesus. They want to overthrow the Caesar, and they want to put their Jesus in the place. Oh, come on. You know full well that they didn't mean that. 
And listen to what the kinds of things Paul and Silas preach. Pray for Caesar, 1 Timothy 2.2. Pray for Caesar, not gotta overthrow him. Honor Caesar, 1 Peter 2.17. Call to obey our, our civic leaders. Romans 13.1, obey the laws. Pay your taxes, Romans 13.6. There's nothing in the gospel and there's nothing in Paul, Silas, or Timothy that would ever even hint of a political coup to overthrow Caesar. But you know, when you can't deal with reality and open the scriptures and say, okay, you're saying this, let me come with some scriptures and, and talk and reason with you. When you can't do that, then you just twist the words of what they are saying. You want to overthrow Caesar. You're a rebel. They didn't say that. So Jason has to post bail, right? In other words, they say, okay, we're going to let you go, but you've got to give us a security deposit in case of future rioting. (laughs) We'll teach you, Jason. We'll teach you to open your heart to the Savior and to good news. We'll teach you. Associate with Christians. You pay a price. And Jason, because you're all Jason, You've associated with him, and you will pay a price. But you'll also be rewarded in ways that make paying the price look very small indeed. Not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Guilty by association, all of you, every last one of you who named Christ, we associate it you with him, the big troublemaker, the one who comes in and demands everybody's allegiance, teaching them, go into all the world, teaching them to obey everything I've said. John chapter three, verse 17. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light. John seven, verse seven. The reason the world hates me is because I accuse it of being evil. You may have done nothing, but you, Jason, are guilty by association. You're gonna pay the price for being associated with Jesus. Let's go on to Berea, a very famous paragraph, then we'll be done. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Okay, so that's 45 miles west. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. (laughs) He never learns. Verse 11, (laughs) in a good way. Uh, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Wow. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Underline that, because that is a life-changing verse to hold on to every day of your life. Examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul, the preacher, teacher, author, was saying was true. Verse 12, many of the Jews believed in Berea, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God, what? At Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, 
but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join them as soon as possible. Well, we're off to Athens next week, but this week we'll consider what happened in Berea. Notice verse 10. It's the brothers that they only knew him three weeks. You know, before Paul came into Thessalonica, he didn't know a soul there. (laughs) And now he brought this beautiful gospel. Now he's got brothers and sisters in the Lord. He's got a family. That's what happens. And they're the ones who urge him to leave. Paul said, are you kidding me? Bring, bring it on. I've been through worse than this. He would stay. He's not running. But the brothers are the ones saying, man, listen, you've been here three weeks. We've got a church, man. We've got a church that meets in Jason's house. All right? There's a world in need. We know a synagogue, 35 miles, 40 tops, west. It's got a good reputation. They're open-minded people down there. Get, go. They're going to kill you here. And so they make sure that under the cover of night, the sixth or seventh time now, running, fleeing, as Jesus taught, when they persecute you in one town, flee to another. And so that's what they're doing here. And it looks like they arrived pretty much on a Saturday and went right to work into the Jewish synagogue. And they met with great success there. And there's a reason. Here's what the Holy Spirit says, and you ought to underline this. They had better material to work with as far as people go. Listen to this. What a beautiful shout out to the Holy Spirit, uh, from the Holy Spirit rather, through Luke, who gives uh, this wonderful affirmation to the Bereans. They were more noble. They were cut above. So many people in the Christian world for 2,000 years have taken the word Berean and applied it to their ministry, to their church, to their college, to their hospital, uh, to their bookstore. Uh, Why? Because the Holy Spirit says, you know, none are righteous in this whole world, but, but among people, there were some noble folks with character that made it easier for them to hear and receive the word of life. The word here is eugenes, here, and I have that for you. It means noble, well-born, or better bred, or a higher class. That's amazing. Let's talk about that. You can leave that up there for a minute. Jesus taught that there are different kinds of people with different kinds of character in their hearts. He said, let me, let me put it to you this way. Imagine if the gospel was like a farmer planting seeds. The word of God is like seeds. And imagine everybody out there, uh, their hearts were different kinds of soil. He says there's basically four kinds of people, four kinds of character. One is hard-hearted. Nothing can penetrate. So there you go. Number two, there's shallowness, surface people. Number three, uncultivated, weeds and thorns and thistles. A lot of things going on that just choke out any seed that comes in. And then there's folks with actual fertile soil. And to be eugenes is to have fertile ground. It means you are eager to listen. It means that you're open-minded 
And so that when you hear the truth, you resonate with it. You don't put up a defensive wall. You put down the wall. And so people without character hear, you know, hey, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they say, what? What you saying? Okay, that's not character. And that doesn't help you. But these people had a professional courtesy. They were a cut above. Hey, listen, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hey, yeah, tell me about it. We've all sinned. Yeah, they can understand that. They have character. And you know what? If you truly are a good person, if you hear the gospel, you can receive it. If you're truly good, because it's all about goodness. It's all about a good God with a good plan who wants us to do good. <laughs> so if you're saying I'm basically a good person but I'm close to the gospel, you're basically lying to me. Just like Jesus said. What did Jesus say? He said uh, to the Pharisees, John chapter 8, they said, hey, listen, we believe in God. God is our Father. Jesus said, oh, if that were true, if God were your Father, you'd have no problem with me. Because I come from him. You would receive me if that were true. But it's not true. And the reason we know it's not true is your response to me and the gospel. That's how we know what's really in your heart. Right? That's what he said. And so these people have a rich soil. They listen without bias. They're not defensive. They're not cynical. You know? Uh, The rabbi there, it's like, hey, if it's the truth, it's the truth. Let's all follow. You know, let's turn this into a church. That's the kind of people they were there. And now check this out, because this is the main thing. They met daily, verse 11, and examined the scriptures to see if Paul's message was true. Forever and ever and ever, you have a place in the Bible to go that affirms that the Bible, the message, the scripture is forever, once and for all, the measure and standard for everything in the world that we hear and see to know if it's right or wrong. The word of God. They examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. The Holy Spirit is saying, you want to know everything you hear and read and you're on the internet and there are books and teachers and new ideas? Look down in your lap. Check out what Pastor Ross is saying. Is it there or not? If it is, it's of God. It's right and true. True is the word. You get rid of the book, you don't have anything. You make anything up. The book is the anchor. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. How important is this? Now, I want to spend some time right here. You can put that back up, Caitlin. I just want to talk about this. Because this is a shout out. We're going to meet somebody in heaven that the Holy Spirit said, wow, as far as people go, they were cut above. Why? Because they did things like this. They checked the word out. Hey, let me check that. Show me. They were saying to Paul, hey, that's a, we receive it, it says in the Greek, readiness of mind, eager. Hey, wow, sounds true, but show me in the Bible. Show me in the Bible. Show me in the Bible, Paul. Paul's like, are you kidding me? 
<laughs> Who are you people? <laughs> yes, of course. I'll show you in the Bible. Now, this is so important. This is my heart to you. Some of you call me your pastor. Listen to me. This is going to save your life. This is going to save your marriage. It's going to save your walk with God. It's going to allow you not to miss the mark, but to finish well and stay the course so that when you see God, he's not going to say, what happened there at the end? He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because you had a measure. You stayed the course because you had a compass. You had a guide. You didn't mess around with the scriptures. You could always say, hey, let me find out if that's right or wrong. Let me open the Bible. Show it to me in the Bible. Now, there's a lot of false doctrine today. We live in the last times. And I want to talk to you about what's very popular right now. In order to do that, you need to understand two important terms. All right? Number one. This is, is what's attacking the church world, and that's why I'm going to bring it up. Number one, postmodernism. All right? Now, it can get very complicated. Let me simplify it. Now that the world has come of age, let's rethink everything we once held as absolute and true. Let's reinvent our worldview according to our current culture and knowledge. In other words, listen. We've grown up, <laughs> we put a guy on the moon, more than one, we've cured a lot of diseases, we've got technology to send uh, signals all over the universe, oh come on, look at the iPhone, okay, now we live post that, all right, now let's look at everything we thought was true and reassess it, reinvent it, let's throw it out, if it needs to be thrown out. Emergent church theology is simply postmodernism in theology. In other words, hey, we've grown up now. All these truths that we thought were real. <laughs> By hell. Hell forever and ever and ever. A loving God. Do you know how many millions of people will burn forever? <laughs> we live in a postmodern world where hell needs to be reimagined and redefined because it doesn't make sense. Jesus the only way? Yeah, well, it says in the Bible, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But are you serious? In a postmodern world, sexual immorality, the sanctity of marriage? Are you kidding me? Look at the world. Look at every sitcom. Look at every advertisement. The world has gone into same-sex marriage, so it's a post-modern world, and your prohibition against same-sex unions is antiquated. Now, you think you could go to the Bible and say, but, but, but Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. If you live in homosexual relationship, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You think you could do that, but you cannot, because emergent church... The emergent church has said, number one premise, we cannot know clearly what the Bible says. So when you go to a scripture now with half of the Christian bookstores dedicated to emergent church, half of it, 
When you go and say to these authors, excuse me, but Jesus talked about hell right here, all right, they say, oh, that's proof texting. We cannot really know what that means. John MacArthur, <laughs> Google John MacArthur and Emergent Church, you'll get a lot of good, easy stuff, all right? Let me read a little bit of an interview with him. He's a good pastor on the Emergent Church. He's an expert. He said, this kind of thinking about saying the Bible is unclear is very convenient. It, if God's word is not clearly uh, understood, then we're not responsible to follow it. It allows them not to take a position on homosexuality, premarital sex, or anything besides let's light some candles and incense, think good thoughts about Jesus, and give to the poor, and take care of the earth, and be kind. It's all about relationship and the journey, not about objective truth. But as MacArthur reminds readers in his book's introduction, to claim that the Bible is not sufficiently clear is to assault God's own wisdom and integrity. God is a revealer of mysteries. John's catchphrase in John's gospel that you will know, that you will know Jesus. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. How is it you false teachers telling me that I can't know the truth? That I can't understand? That you may know, that you may know, that you may know over and over again in the scriptures. If they don't believe anything, they can't offend anybody. They're not under any mandate to say anything in particular. They play on the bad experiences and disappointments of people raised in the church. They basically can define themselves by experiences that are familiar to the culture. They make the gospel seem inadequate and antiquated, and they've got the missing piece. Come follow them. Well, you know what? I just read Ecclesiastes because we're dealing with King Solomon, and thank you for that. And Ecclesiastes says, Solomon says, is there anything new? Okay, come on. All of this stuff in the Christian bookstore, it's not new. Let me show you the premise that says we can't really understand God's word because it's not clear. The very first line out of the devil's mouth, the very first sentence from the, from the serpent says this, now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? Oh, come on, Eve. Did he say that? Let's just start to undermine the authority of the scriptures of what God said. Come on, did I, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, 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 no. Yeah, he said we can eat from all the trees except one, or we will die. Oh, die? Has anybody died around here? Have you seen an animal die? What is die? Maybe he meant pie. Were you not listening? Maybe it's a good thing. Listen, folks, if, if I only had one scripture to stand on, it would be this one. It says, you stop questioning the clarity, the simple truth of the scriptures, because that's what the devil did. That's the, what he does. How else can he get you to move and swerve in any direction? Did God really say? Did Jesus really say there was a hell? Yeah, uh, Matthew chapter five and verse 29, he did. He said, 
hey, if it's your hand that causes you to sin, you better chop that thing off because it'd be better to go to heaven with only one hand, one good hand, than to be thrown into hell with two good hands. But what did that really mean? Well, it doesn't sound pretty, does it? <laughs> did God really say he's gonna judge the world? Psalm 110, verse six. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Well, what does that really mean? Does it sound fun? Doesn't sound good to me. Did God really say homosexuality is a sin? Did God really say Jesus is the only way? Did God really say that anyone who rejects Jesus will perish? Jude, verse three, then we'll move on or wrap up. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about salvation, something more important came up. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was, here it is, once for all entrusted to the saints. Yeah, we live in a postmodern world and a lot of things change. But the gospel, Jude 1.3, because you know the Bible, and you can go to the Bible, and you can say, Jude 1.3, it was entrusted once and for all. <laughs> it doesn't change. Jesus Christ, who is the living word of God, the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. The word of God is perfect. It does not change. The cultures change. But the truth doesn't change. It'll never be okay to steal. It'll never be okay to commit sexual immorality. It'll never be okay to do these things. But now suddenly we're reinventing and you're disallowed and discouraged from the measure to be able to say, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, look at this. Can't do it anymore. Because you narrow-minded and you ignorant and you don't understand what the real Bible is really saying. So my heart to yours Please be careful. Please finish well. Please just be noble. Be, no, be a cut above. Cut above. Because a lot of people, they're already gone. I have friends gone. They're gone. Can't reel them back. Because I can't do anything. I can't say, hey, hey, look at this, look at this. Oh, no, what does that say? Can't understand it. It's more serious than anybody in this room realizes. More, way more serious. It's everywhere. It's only going to get worse and worse and worse. And you know what? Who's the bad guys? I'm the bad guy. I'm part of the pastor in the local church tradition, the backward, old school, old way of doing things, encouraging you to be hateful and all fear-mongering and all of this stuff. You have to be very, very careful. Your association with me is just going to get you in trouble. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Uh, let's move on. I'm glad for that amen there. Amen. <laughs> so the jealous, unbelieving Jews from the last stop hear that they're preaching the word of God and that's what causes them to come. I can imagine if you hear that they're doing something terrible, but these guys from Thessalonica get wind that they've moved on the 45 miles to Berea and they're doing the same thing. Preaching the word of God, we can't have that. So they send the thugs to town 
and they do their thing again, the inflammatory speech and, and all of that. So in closing, I got written down here, which crowd are you hanging with? You're guilty by association, you realize, right? Because Jesus is the big troublemaker. He's the big meanie, right? Matthew chapter 10, Jesus comes and says, listen, don't get my mission wrong. I didn't come uh, to bring peace, as you guys think of it. I came bringing a sword. Because of me, families are going to be divided. Because of me and the gospel, uh, a son will be against his father and a father against his son because of me. And that's a good thing. It's a normal thing. Jesus said, that's why I came. I came to bring truth. He told Pontius Pilate, and who, I came to bring truth, and whoever's on the, the side of truth listens to me. I came to divide the sheep from the goats, the believers from unbelievers, the saved from the lost. So there is a price that we pay to associate with the troublemaker with the sword of truth who brings division wherever he goes. I like what one writer said. Uh, Let me find it here. I could probably just sum it up. He said, uh, he's a British writer, and he said, um, he said, wherever the apostle Paul went, there were riots. He said, wherever I go, they serve me tea. (laughs) (laughs) In making the point that when we associate with Jesus, the one who said, unless you believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will die in your sins. When we associate with this guy who says in John 10, everyone who came before me is a liar. I am the only way. When you associate with a guy who's telling everybody they need to repent and obey him as sovereign Lord, when you make that association, Jason, you would chase him. You got to post bails. And that takes a form, a different form in every culture and every situation. But know this as you are associated now with the big troublemaker, then you'll be associated with the conquering king. You know, in the Olympics, when the one guy wins the gold for the team, and then the camera pans, so that guy is in, uh, climbs the podium, and he, the gold is around the neck, and the flag of the whole team is raised, and the anthem is playing. You could look at the team members and say, by association, they're the winners. They enter that joy. So in the same way that we here today are associated with Jesus in a negative way, <laughs> He says, those who acknowledge me in this life, I will confess before God the Father and all the angels. Did you catch that? Because of your association with Christ. There's a price to pay here and a reward to receive through association with this Lord and Christ. The Christ of Christmas came in this world to save us to give us a hope and a future. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It just, it rescues us. It saves us. It sets us free.
It gives us light in our eyes, radiance and joy. It's sweet to our tastes. We live by it. We're guided by it. We're protected by it. Help us to learn it, to live it, to cling to it. And most importantly, Lord, just to use it to line the things up in our hearts and lives to see if they're true and worth embracing by checking with the scriptures. I mean, thank you that we have this anchor. It's so easy and simple. Give us the strength and the courage to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. I just want to say that I love you. I have a pastor's love in my heart as a shepherd, and I feel the weight of responsibility from God on my shoulders to love and to protect you from what I see all over the place. That little serpentine's hiss of just tweaking the truth just enough and to complicate things so that he can grab you. That's what's motivating it. And I would like just nothing better than just to get up and talk and just have a fun and encouraging and laugh and all of this stuff, but not when souls are on the line. It's a serious subject. And you know what? All that awkwardness, if there was awkwardness in, do you know what all I'm saying? Stick to the word of God. That's all I'm saying. So there's nothing a big awkward thing. It's all I'm saying as opposed to what's out there. Stick to the scriptures. Stay with the gospel. It's been around for thousands of years. It's really okay as it is. As it is. Does it not mean that we can do church a little bit better? We could uh, get rid of the things that don't work as far as liturgy and things like that? Of course. That kind of stuff. But if it's in the Bible, it's in the Bible, man. We don't mess with the word of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Help us to be a lover of the word of God and not to move, to be immovable, just always abounding the grace of God and every good work. Thank you. Bless this congregation with discernment and a love for your word and truth. And Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus over everybody who hears my voice that when a lie comes through their mind, they will instantly be aware of it and know by the power of the word of God to stay true to the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And God bless you. Prayer at the cross. We'll see you Wednesday night or next Sunday. God bless you.